You are listening to Read It, Roll It, Hole It. He's two putts from victory. Only needs one. Welcome, golfers, to the next episode of the Read It, Roll It, Hole It podcast. Today, we've got uh, special guest Gary Nickel on the call. Welcome, Gary. Thanks for having me. Love to join you. Looking forward to this. Really looking forward to it. For those, um, for those of you listeners who don't know, <clears throat> excuse me, who Gary is, he's a, um, a professional golfer up at Archfield Links. He is um, a coach to many, coached many good golfers over the years, um, sort of all level of golfers, from my understanding. And uh, more recently, you're the co-author of three top-selling books. Would that be a fair introduction, yeah, Gary? Yeah, yeah. The, the first one we launched at, we actually launched at the Scottish Open uh, along at Gillen, just along the road from where we are in 2018, which was the lost art of putting. Uh, the follow-up to that was the lost art of playing golf, which we launched just over a year, oh, no, wait a minute, 2019, late 2019. And the last in the collection is the lost art of the short game, which has just got on sale the last two, three weeks. How exciting. Yeah, so I wrote that with Carl Morris, who many of your listeners may well know, a great performance coach and a very good friend of mine. I've known Carl for a long, long time. So it's been a great, uh, a great experience, if nothing else, collaborating on the three books. And they've, they've seemed to be very well received. And we get emails and notes from people all around the world saying thanks very much. So if we can help people to have a bit more fun on the golf course and if they shoot lower scores in the process, then job done, I guess, from our perspective. We've certainly done our best to help happy days yeah they uh the uh carl morris is a definitely a friend of the show he was on the uh on the podcast um i think it was at the start of uh this year so uh okay yeah, we uh we know uh we know carl well and his work and uh, a big fan of of what he does and yourself um with the book so uh i've i've read the uh the putting one i haven't got around to the other two yet okay but, uh, being a being a putting geek i thought i'd better read the um, one and thoroughly enjoyed it. It, uh, yeah, you. I think uh, you know it, it's very good, very good indeed. And we'll, we'll dive into more info on that today for sure. Sure. So I wanted to start with um, your experience of playing with lots, uh, not playing, coaching. Sorry, lots of good players over the years. So you mentioned, yeah. I think, thirty tall players. Um, yeah over the years um one one thing i want to sort of dive into is perhaps what is the biggest thing you've learned from them fantastic question uh i think i probably learned something from all of them something different but if there was one thing that i'd learned from them as a collective group if you like would be that the ones who did best the ones who one more money or more tournaments, whatever than, than the others, were the ones who'd figured out their game. We'd figured out the best way to play their game. They didn't get kind of sucked into the trying to play someone else's game. I mean, they, they, we've all done it at some point in our lives, haven't we? We've tried to play someone else's game and we're probably, you know, it's golf stuff enough to try and play your own game, never mind someone else's, I've discovered over the years. So once you kind of understand your way of playing and just aim to get better at that. I think that's the kind of the key that I learned from most of these guys. So, you know, the, I work with some guys who perhaps weren't brilliant 
drivers of the ball or perhaps weren't the best iron players or whatever aspect. They all had an aspect of the game that they obviously always wanted to get better at. They probably all wanted to get better at every aspect. But there were guys who knew they were very good putters and knew they were very good short game guys and knew they were very good drivers. And they kind of, they used that as the anchor point for the rest of their game and just kind of built their game around a certain aspect that they felt they were very good at or knew they were very good at. So, yeah, it's such a difficult question to answer because, as you well know, it's an individual sport. Everyone sees the game differently. Not everyone sees the game the same way. Not everyone thinks about the game the same way. So, as a coach, it's really, for me, quite important to kind of understand how they see the game and what the game means to them. Hmm. Because without knowing that, you're just kind of jumping in on the back of an observation on what you think is happening. But until you kind of dive deeper into their psyche and their motivations, it's really quite hard to make any headway or progress. I love that, Gary. It's um, figuring out what's under the bonnet before you yeah, jump absolutely. in. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. good. That's interesting you mentioned that because I, I, I sort of put down here a quote of yours, or you, you put it somewhere anyway, that, um, that, that all the good players, they all do it their own way. Yeah. So my question to you is, what what do they do well to be the best? So if they let's talk about putting, mm-hmm. obviously they've all they all do it their own way, but they all get the ball in the hole in the least amount of shots. So what yep. apart from the obvious of getting the ball in the hole in the least amount of shots, what characteristics or uh, fundamentals do they do very well? Well, I think first of all they trust themselves, they back themselves, they have faith in themselves. So without, you can have the best technique in the world, but if you don't believe in it, then you're going nowhere fast. So the one thing that I think certainly all, all the best putters I've ever worked with have always had, they've had great belief in what they're doing. And they've always been very, very good at pace. Belief and pace, I love it. That's good. With, with belief then, can you <laughs> coach belief, Gary? And how do you coach it? Do you know what? If we could, <laughs> we'd all be millionaires, right? Uh, belief comes from doing, doesn't it? Belief sure. comes from the confidence in your ability to perform a certain task. And belief comes from having done that task on a number of times when it matters. So belief is something that I think has to come from within. You know, I, I can tell you all day long until I'm blue in the face that I think you're the best putter I've ever seen. But until you actually believe it for yourself, it's just my opinion. Sure. You know, and I think, you know, I always, the people, I the four guys in for a class this morning and I asked them, okay, who's the person you, you speak to most in your life? And three of them said, well, my wife. And one of them, other one said, well, actually, I speak to myself more than I speak to anyone else. Hmm. And for me, that is a correct answer. That's, we speak to our, you know, this internal chatter we always have within our, our own minds. And if you don't believe what you're telling yourself, then it doesn't matter who else tells you you're a great putter. If you don't believe it for yourself, then it's never really going to have a major impact, is it? Totally, totally agree. And uh, yeah, I really like that example there of, um, you know, who we talk to the most. It's... Uh, um, yeah, it certainly does ring true, doesn't it? We talk to ourselves quite a lot. Yeah, and I think 
one of the things I discovered from working with these guys this morning, and I, I see this on a, a daily basis, is you know, I asked them all the question, would you ever speak to anyone else the way you speak to yourself on the golf course? I said, God, no. We'd have no family or friends left. You know, we'd, no, <laughs> we'd live a very lonely existence. So I kind of said, right, okay, so if I kept chipping away at you, saying, you know, you're not really, you're not putting very well. You, you know, you're keeping a lot of these three putts. You keep leaving them short. You keep knocking them past. If I said that to you, every time you hit a putt, it would soon, it wouldn't take long for you to get a bit fed up with it. Sure. So we wouldn't accept it from anyone else, but we seem to think it's okay to speak to ourselves like that. Interesting, isn't it? We just would never speak to anyone the way we speak to ourselves. We're always going to be our own harshest critics. And, you know, we've all got a little bit of the perfectionist within us. And sometimes that can be a good thing, but sometimes it can also be a bad thing. But I think you've got to be very careful about how you speak to yourself. Internal chatter is massively, massively important. You know, we all, we all take... I guess we all take two caddies out in the course with us every time we play. We've got the, the good caddy on this shoulder and the bad caddy on, on the opposite <laughs> shoulder. Who do we listen to? You know, the, the good caddy is saying, now, if you just roll this into the, the, the hole at a nice pace, just see it dropping into the left-hand side. The bad caddy said, yeah, but once you don't see putt again, you just had a three-putt in the last hole. Yeah. <laughs> the bad caddy tends to sh- shout a bit louder than the good caddy, doesn't he? Absolutely. How do you shut up the naughty caddy and listen to the other one fire him (laughs) (laughs) how do you fire him yeah it's a good question uh joking apart no it's we've all been told you know you've got to control your thoughts you you can't have negative thoughts you only you can only have positive thoughts but you know, from the, the research that we've done, we've discovered we have the human, most human beings have between 60 and 80,000 thoughts a day. So wow. trying to control them, you just can't do it. So it's not about trying to control your thoughts. It's more about developing a different relationship with them. So just, you know, we, Carl and I have both done quite a lot of mindfulness over the last couple of years, which is not words that I ever thought would I'd hear coming out of my mouth, but it's been mm-hmm. fantastic. It really has. And it's just about... You know, just because you just because you think it doesn't mean to say it's true. Yeah. That's one of the things I've really learned, which has been hugely helpful. And passing that on to students, I think they've found it helpful as well. So just because you think it doesn't mean to say it's true. So you know, if you have a, a thought, you're standing over a six foot putt, and a a negative thought comes into your into your mind. You know, the way I like to view it is, you know, it's like I'm, I'm sitting on a riverbank fishing, catch a fish. Don't like the look of it, I throw it back in and just let it swim back down the river. Same with these thoughts. You don't have to cling on to them. The, the more you cling on to them, the more importance or attention you pay to them, the, the greater the value they have. But if you get rid of them, you can they can't affect you, they can't do you any harm. So yeah, being mindful of your thoughts and being aware of what is going on between your ears, because every action, every move we make emanates from what happens in your in your thinking and one way that we've found to be really helpful in order to direct your attention direct your thinking to a more helpful place is to ask questions because questions are very good at focusing your attention i like that so what um questions would be useful questions gary without reading the book out and giving it all away because i want the listeners to certainly come off this call and go straight to your website and buy the book. 
I think the first question would be to always ask is, is it possible this ball could go in the hole? It's always possible, yeah. right? Always. Until someone builds a brick wall or a bunker between your ball and the hole, it's always possible. Might not be highly probable, but it's always possible. And I think Sevi, Sevi just... had to be the, the best at that. Oh, no question. Our Tiger was pretty good at it as well. He could wheel the ball into the hole, couldn't he? Well, yeah, that's uh, that's very true. That's very true. My two favourite golfers right there we're talking about. Well, that's... why wouldn't he be? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, if they're not box office, who is? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, yeah, so... question focus your attention. But as, as golfers, we tend to ask really bad questions. You know, why can't I pull any putts? Why do I keep three putting? Why, why can't I get the pace of these greens? And then, you know, when you keep kind of doubting yourself and you keep telling yourself, you, you know, you, that your story is that you're, you're not a very good putter, we tend to live out the stories we tell ourselves. That's, you know, going back to who's the person we speak most to, and that's ourselves. If we keep telling ourselves we're not very good at something, guess what's going to happen? You're going to remain not very good at whatever it is you're, you're trying to achieve. Sure. And, the, you know, we talk about the thinker and the prover, what the thinker thinks the prover proves. You know, if I think I'm going to miss from six feet, the prover in my mind is going to go to work to prove me right, because we'd almost rather be right than good sometimes. Told you I was going to miss <laughs> that. Always miss yeah. these. It's up three, three putts every time I play. I knew I was so going to miss telling that, yourself yeah. these stories, you're going to live them out. You know, self-fulfilling prophecy. One of my uh, favourite quotes um, from from Keith Ray at my old golf club is uh, what the mind believes the body achieves. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's a nice. Definitely uh, nice isn't it? For sure. So, Gary, quite often golfers will ask the question or coaches might, like, what's the percentage of mental v technical, if you like? Mm-hmm. What's your views on if you've got a number and, and expanding <clears throat> on that? Yeah, I think that varies from person to person. Um, I think that the, well, golf is a very physical game. You know, we use our body to use a club to hit the ball from point A to point B. But most of the time we're playing golf, we're not actually playing golf, if that makes sense. Sure. So we, we spend more time between shots than we do actually hitting shots. And I think that's where most of the damage can be done is in between shots. Because we because we're not very good self talk. Sorry to cut over you. No, no, carry because on. Of the, the, because of the self talk, is that why you're saying that? Yeah. 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 I mean, we're we're not very good at leaving bad shots behind, are we? As golfers. No. Let's face it. You know, we, we'd like to drag along that baggage to weigh us down. And we allow it to, you know, allow one bad shot to contaminate the next one and influence the next one. Because, you know, when, when you, let's say you hit a shot into a bunker, a greenside bunker from 150 yards, by the time we get to our ball in the bunker, we're still so raging and so horrendously disappointed and upset with ourselves that we end up making a mess of the bunker shot because we've, we've not actually paid any attention to it because we're still thinking about the shot that got us there in the first place. <laughs> so we, you know, we've given ourselves a good 150 yards to really beat ourselves up mentally. 
And unless you can snap out of that, then you're still going to be angry about the previous shot when you played this one. So, uh, yeah, I'm not saying that technique isn't important, but I, what I will say is I don't think it's the first port of call. I think it's all too easy as a golf coach to observe, comment, and then suggest a fix. You know, by suggesting a fix, we're suggesting that something's broken. But, you know, I, I tend to find is that most golfers don't play bad golf or hit bad shots or hit bad putts because of bad technique. I think that the, if the technique isn't great, it's because they have a flawed concept of what they're trying to do, of how they're trying to get the ball to do what they're trying to, to where they, they want it to go. So it's more of a conceptual thing initially before it becomes a technical issue for me. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. And I would totally agree. That that guy who's going into that bunker with those still angry, I say guy, guy or lady, um, yeah. who go into that bunker, it doesn't matter what their technique is, they're going to hit a shit shot, aren't they? Yeah, could be the best player <laughs> in the world. But if, you're, if you're still beating yourself up mentally, if not physically as well, uh, I've seen that before. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah you, you can't really, you know, if the human mind's brilliant at time travel. That's one of the things I've learned from Carl is that, you know, we're brilliant at mentally traveling in time. We're great at dwelling in the past. We're fantastic at jumping into the future, but we're really, really poor at being present. And we all know in order to play golf to any kind of level, you've got to be, you've got to be doing it in the here and now. Sure. And you've got to be present. So again, going back to the questions, questions will direct your attention and will ground you in the present, in the present moment. So crucial, isn't it, to be in that present moment over the ball? Yeah, and I think the biggest thing about not being present is you're actually robbing yourself of the experience. Nice. You know, if you're still thinking about what has happened or what thing can so you can jump ahead to what might happen on the next hole or the next time you play or whatever it is, or how this shot's going to affect your handicap, your score, anything else, you're actually robbing yourself of that present moment experience. Hmm. And you look back on it, you think, well, I, I wasn't even aware of what I was doing then because I was too busy thinking about what has happened and what might happen. Definitely. So have you got, um, you know, if we, we've just hit that shot into the bunker or let's say mm -hmm. we've just missed a three-foot putt and we're walking to the next tee, which is a real challenging tee shot. Yeah. Have you got a, a technique, um, and you may have answered this with question, but have you got a technique to help golfers forget or put to bed what has just happened yeah you, well I think if you if you go out before you even start if you go out with the the understanding that an ex, that you will actually hit some bad shots at some point on the, during any round of golf I mean no one no one's perfected golf yet as far as I'm aware no one's played a perfect round of golf as yet no. People have had fantastic scores, shot fantastic low numbers, but no one's actually perfected it. So, you know, if you understand and accept that the odd bad shot will happen, and it will tend to happen because you were you were present, you weren't paying attention to what you could or should have been at that precise moment in time. You know, when we hit bad shots, we, we tend to blame our technique straight away. Yeah. And when they start, we start, because we're blaming it, we start questioning it. Because we start questioning it, we don't trust it. If we don't trust it, we don't commit. So it becomes a kind of vicious circle 
of negativity and lack of faith and an increased level of doubt. So when you're doubting what you're doing, you're never going to commit to. So you've got to understand that the best players in the world will hit bad shots from time to time. So if these guys are hitting bad shots from time to time, we have no right to expect as mere mortals that we're not we're going to play a perfect round of golf. We're never going to hit a bad shot. So if you actually accept you're going to hit the odd bad one, you can deal with that. Okay. But if, if you go out with the mindset where I'm not saying you, I'm not saying you've got to go out in a, with a defeatist mindset where, yeah, I'm, I'm going to hit loads of bad shots and I'm, and I'm going to talk myself into hitting bad shots. That's not, that's not the case at all. But if you do understand and accept that you will hit the occasional shot that doesn't quite work out as planned, then you know what? It's because you're human. Mm. And if you can accept that before you go out, then when it does happen, you can deal with it. I love that. And again, to switch off, leave it behind. Once you get to the next tee, you then ask another question. Okay, what is the shot here? Is it driver? Is it three? Is it a draw? Is it a fade? Is it a high? Is it low? Because that gets your attention very much in the here and now again. Hmm. You know, what does a really good shot look like? You can start your visualization skills, start to kick in. You can start to picture the shot or picture the or picture the bunker shot. You can see the flight of the ball. And then hopefully, if you're asking good enough questions and you come up with good enough answers, you'll be, become very engrossed and engaged in that task. And you'll no longer be thinking about what happened five minutes ago or 20 yards ago. Fantastic. So acceptance and good questions. Yeah. To let help it help you let it go. I like that. Absolutely. That's good. Just um, a, a random question just popped to my head while you were yeah. saying perfecting golf. I don't think I've ever asked this, and you've probably never been asked it, but do you think anyone will ever complete golf one day? No. <laughs> so did... Have you well, been asked well, that question? Well, what's, it depends on your definition of perfect. I, I guess, well, a perfect round of golf is 18 shots. You can't do better than that. Well, I don't think you could ever do that. Well, you know, that, that would mean holding out you know, all tee shots and par fours and fives. Yeah. So if we're to say that perfect was... You know, a perfect drive landed in the middle of the fairway and a perfect second shot went in the hole. That, I mean, it well, depends what your definition of perfect is. Yeah. Is, is perfect every hole of birdie? Is perfect eagles on par fives and birdies on par fours and holes in one on par three? I don't know. <clears throat> I, don't think, I don't think anyone will ever... I mean, how, how many guys have shot in the 50s or how many ladies have shot in the 50s over the years? You would think with all the advancements in technology and golf balls and drivers and irons, whatever, that more and more people would, you know, as far as the ball goes today, you would think that more and more people would shoot in the 50s. But it's just not that easy. If it was, you know, we we, we would be having this conversation. We'd be out shooting 54, wouldn't we? Yeah, definitely. (laughs) Yeah, we would. It's an interesting, your mind goes racing. Uh, Yeah, maybe by the year 3000, there might be a... They might be a bit closer to it. Yeah, we're playing on 12,000-yard long golf courses. There'll only be about three of them because there's not enough space for any more than that. 
It'd be all robots, though, wouldn't it? Programmed with golf balls with chips. Exactly. In exactly. Well, so at least they won't, golf... have, they won't let their heads get in the way of it, that's for sure. <laughs> that's uh, that's one way to get rid of uh, yeah. the mind. Yeah. Build a Just robot. But even a robot's not going to, they, you know, get it perfect, are they? No, they can't. No, I mean, we've done, we've done testing with putters over the years with, you know, robots and machines and things and you know you can set up a a mechanism where the putter is released at the set at the same speed from the same spot time after time after time and we did this i remember doing this with a guy dave hicks a few years ago we had 10 balls lined up on a 10 foot putt on a perfectly flat perfectly straight putt and the robot missed two out of ten worked that one out so you you know you can hit you can you can hit a perfectly good putt on a perfectly good green at the perfect pace, perfect line. And there's no guarantee the ball's going to go in the hole. So again, if you can accept that, then you can actually deal with it. I had, a, it. Um, I had a really interesting uh, sort of conversation with a guy I work online from the States and he bought a perfect putter. Are you yes. aware of that? Yeah, yeah. So it's like a little... Um, the shoot where yeah, the ball, one, yeah, yeah. it starts the ball online every single time mm -hmm. and he said car if i could take this on the course i would be like plus 10 strokes gained so i in he so he was very focused he he thought that start line is the most important skill for putting yeah um, and technique there was the most important so i challenged him to go and do a a, a sort of strokes gain test and he was actually a lot worse with the perfect putter than he was right. with his own stroke. Right, interesting. Which is interesting. So it goes to show that obviously matching lines. Well, the, the thing about the perfect putter is it's as good as it is, by the time the ball's hitting the green, it's got four momentum. It's got no loft on it, a perfect putter, has it? No, no. Putter does. So putter, it doesn't actually replicate what the ball... It only replicates what the ball does once it starts rolling. Sure. But if you've got a putter with any amount of loft, <clears throat> which it needs because... <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> you need to get the ball up onto the putting surface before it can start rolling. So it doesn't actually replicate a true roll of a putt. No. No, it's, it's, um, it's almost 10% better, isn't it? Yeah, well, it's taken out the skid. Yeah. Taken out the skid and the bounce before we get it. All it really is doing is creating a perfect roll. Yeah, but you, um, I don't need to tell you that doesn't happen because you get skid, you get bounce, you get all sorts of things going on before the ball starts to roll. Hundred percent. The first normally first ten percent as a rough guide, it has a little yeah. hop, skip, and a jump, doesn't it? Before you get it going. So, yeah, interesting stuff. Um, Gary, just going back to something you said earlier about um, when we were talking about technique, and mm -hmm. you said a um, uh, correct me if I'm if, if I'm right here, um, if I'm wrong even. Um, you were talking about concepts mm -hmm. is what sort of overpowers perhaps what people poor concepts override sort of the most important thing in technique. Yeah, can you perhaps share with us what you see poor concepts? to be that golfers have on the putting green? Yeah, <clears throat> a lot of people don't understand that the ball does actually 
get up onto the, the surface. You know, a, a ball is going to be heavy in a blade of grass. It's going to sit slightly down on the turf. Yeah. So you need a bit of loft to get it up onto the, the flat before it can start rolling. And it will, because of that loft, it's going to skid and it's going to bounce a little bit. And when people try to take the loft off the putter in order to eliminate that, they actually create more of it. So in order to, by trying to fix the fault, they've created another one. Sure. And then they start to hit a bit higher in the putter face and they compress the ball into the ground so it starts to bounce even more. The more it bounces, the harder it's going to be to control your pace or your distance. And you're trying to take the putter, so many people I see try to take the putter straight back and straight through, yep. which would be fine if, <clears throat> excuse me, the shaft was coming out of the putter at 90 degree angle, but it's not. You know, we're standing inside the line, so there has to be an element of rotation. But people try to take that rotation out and they get themselves in all sorts of messes by doing so, because they're altering the, the path, they're altering the face angle, they're altering the loft. You know, even things like I had a young kid in who was a very, very good player a couple of years ago. <clears throat> he was at university in the States and I graduated and he's kind of, I think he's, he was at Cornberry finals last week or this week, last week. Um, and he, he got this Scotty Cameron putter and it was a beautiful putter and he, he got it from a friend who'd got it off the tour van for him. And he said, you know, I'm just, it's a, it's a great putter, but it's not working for me. And I said, right, okay, let me see you hit a couple of putts. So I said, right, okay, what are you trying to do? And he explained, and I said, right, okay, well, that's all very good. I said, how much loft have you got in your putter? He said, I've got three degrees. I said, right, okay, that, that's fine, but you've got about a four-degree forward press. Hmm. So you've actually got negative loft when you hit the ball. And he's there with his dad, and his dad said, uh, what do you mean he's got a four-degree forward press? So well, before he takes the putter back, he forward presses with his hands, which were, it was actually opened the face a little bit as well, as he did so. But the, the main thing was it took all the loft off it, plus a degree almost. Mm. So no wonder he couldn't get his distance of direction right. And he said, oh, I, I'd never even thought about that. I said, well, I know that for, for a fact that Monty always used a putter with seven degrees for many, many years because he had a big forward press. Right. So if you, if you don't calculate that into what's happening, you know, so three degrees would be the perfect putter for him if he didn't have a forward press or if it was just absolutely minor or minuscule. But because it was quite pronounced, it actually changed the playing characteristics of his, of his putter massively. And obviously that influenced and affected the, the role of the ball. Sure. But... Um... It's a big, yeah. It's, an, it's a big part of um, distance control, isn't it? Getting a good roll. What other yeah. key components do you need to have good distance control, Gary? You need to be able to read greens properly. Okay. And I think most green reading, historically, I think we're get, we're getting better as as an industry now. But I think historically, when we talked about reading greens, it was about reading lines. Okay. Yeah, and pace wasn't yeah. really a consideration. You know, you've got to get the start line right. You've got to get the start line right. Well, that's all very well, but you've got to get the pace right ultimately. For me, pace determines the line. Agreed. Pace gives you options online. Sure. Whereas if you're really focusing 
entirely on the line and not really giving yourself or not paying enough attention to the pace, you're going to leave them short, you're going to hit them past, you're going to do all sorts of different things. And what we tend to do historically is, you know, we, we, we pick a line and decide how hard we're going to hit it. I think if you just kind of flip that on its head and think about the pace first, so figure out how hard you're going to hit it. And, you know, there are all sorts of influences, the speed of the green. Is it uphill? Is it downhill? Is it breaking right to left? Is it breaking left, left to right? Is it a straight putt? Whatever it is. Without these considerations, we don't know how hard we're going to hit it. If we don't know how hard we're going to hit the putt, then how can we possibly choose a line? So I think historically we've, we've jumped in, we've read the line, not really considering the pace too much or the distance even too much. You know, when was the last time you hit a shot into a green, didn't know how far you had? Well, I ask this every day. People say, well, well, never. I always use a yardage book or I use a laser. I've got it on my, on my, my watch or whatever. And then I'll ask them, when was the last time you hit a putt? You didn't know how far you had. Mm, I don't know. Last time I hit a putt, I suppose. Hmm. So unless we factor in distance, slope, green speed, that's, you know, reading greens is so, so important. We spend a lot of time explaining to people, helping people understand that you can have the best technique in the world, but if you can't read greens, then that talent's going to go to waste. Sure. I think that's a great bit of advice for the listeners there to, to flip it and read the, the sort of distance first or decide, even just make a decision on what speed yeah. they're going to hit the ball at. Like you talk about short putts, speed is still very important on them. And if, you know, if you're going to hit it uh, dead weight or two foot past, that it's going to break extremely different. So absolutely. It's going to affect and influence the line massively, isn't it? 100%. What's um what's your views on uh, Aimpoint Express? Yeah, I, I think it's as systems go. I think it's very good. You know, it's going to be massively beneficial to an awful lot of people. Um, it's <clears throat> but again, putting's very individual. It's an individual game, and it's a, it's very much an individual aspect. Putting's very much an individual aspect of that game, and I, I'm. <laughs> I would never say that everything's going to work for everyone. No, not, not everything I say is going to work for everyone. Not everything you say is going to work for everyone. So that's why, you know, you've got to go deeper into the person's understanding of what they're trying to do, kind of get a, a clear understanding of what their concepts are, what their intention is, where their attention is. So until you go and you can start into that and you can start to understand what's happening inside the person, you know, systems are great, but again, they're like technique for me. They're not the first port of call. Okay. They, they, are, they can be great complementary components to the bigger picture of becoming a better putter, for sure. Totally agree. Totally agree. Obviously, I'm extremely biased there with them, um, with if I think Aimpoint is uh, helpful coaching. coaching no, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's I, very, um, very helpful to that question. Yeah, I think that's that's the key is that it is if you were learning, if you did learn Aimpoint Express, it's an extra tool for you to have in your toolbox. Absolutely. To get out to help you get to the answer. It's not, you know, some players will use different aspects of it for different yeah. 
Absolutely. I mean, the the, the stuff that Carl and I do, the the books we've written, they're not prescriptive. They are concepts and ideas that we want people to then take away and personalize. There may be aspects or an aspect of what we talk about that really kind of resonates or, or hits home with them. And it's about their interpretation and application of that concept. We're not saying, we would never say you must do it this way and you must not do it that way. Hmm. Because, you know, if you're doing it a certain way and it works more often than not, and time after time after time you're having great success with it, then who am I to tell you to do it differently? That'd be pretty yeah. arrogant and pretty dumb, to be honest. <laughs> let's, let's yeah, yeah, it. absolutely. So, you know, again, going back to working with good players, they understood the way they played their brand of golf, if you like. Yeah. No, I like that. I like that, Gary. Okay, let's um, let's just sort of change topic for a second. I want to go back to your early days. Um, not your early days, but your you you've um, put on your website that the two coaches you've learned a lot from over the years is Bob Torrance and Pete Cowan. Yeah, um, they've been great mentors of yours. Can you um, explain or, or talk us through how they've uh, helped you over the years and what, uh, if there's anything specific um, or a story you can tell with those two legends? Yeah, my, my, Bob Torrance is, uh, is, a, is a, the late, great Bob Torrance was a, a very good uh, personal friend of my, my late father's, who's a golf writer. So they knew each other for a long, long time. So the, the Torrances and the Nichols have been friends for, for many, many years. Now, I remember my, my introduction to Bob. I, was, well, I wasn't even 18 years old. I was 17 and a half years old. And not long past my driving test. And I think the furthest I'd driven was from the little village I grew up in called Balerno, just outside Edinburgh, into town, which is about seven miles. And my dad had arranged for me to go and see Bob at Largs, <clears throat> which was 60, 70 miles away. And I had to be there for, I don't know, nine o'clock on a Monday morning or something. So I left home, again, as I say, never really having driven any distance at all, going to the other side of the country to a place I'd never been to it was long before we had sat navs or anything like that. You know, it's you know, made black and white roadmaps. That's how, that's how long ago it was. The world was black and white almost. And I, I, I got to Largs at Inverclyde to see Bob. I think it was two minutes past nine. And his first words were, you're late. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, okay. So I learned a very valuable lesson about timekeeping from, from him. That was the, the first lesson I learned from Bob was, you know, if you're, your lesson's at nine o'clock, be there at 10 too, because nine o'clock's late, two minutes past is very late. Because he said, would you be, what time would you have been here for nine o'clock tea off time? I said, well, we'd have been here about eight. He says, so you would have missed your time, wouldn't you? I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm sorry about that. I just, I didn't. He said, I know where you've come from. I know you've only just passed your test. You should have given yourself more time. Hmm. If you're never late, they said, if you're never... If you're always early, you'll never be late. <laughs> and since then, I have been a fastidious timekeeper. I mean, I'm pretty obsessive about timekeeping. I hate being late for anyone. 
because I think it's just the height of bad manners. I'm glad so, you were here at two minutes to ten this morning then, when we uh, oh, had a ten, ten o'clock yeah. call. Two Knocking minutes to Where are you? Where you are you? Let me in. <laughs> That's good. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty obsessive about timekeeping. You know, if my first session of the day is at nine o'clock, I'm here at eight. Love just that. to make sure, just because I... I want to give myself an hour in case a computer goes down or something happens or there's no golf balls or I need to do something or whatever, or there's traffic on the bypass or, you know, I always want to give myself plenty of time. I, I just, I hate being late. It's just something that really, really, so, I mean, as much as Bob helped me, you know, help with my understanding of the golf swing and ball flight and everything, the, the biggest lesson I learned was that, that one morning about, about timekeeping. Brilliant. No, so yeah, that's great. Not, not every lesson has that sticks with you has to be a golf lesson. You know, life lessons are equally as important, if not more so. Totally. What yeah, life and, lesson did uh, Pete Cowan teach you? Don't smile at work. People think you're enjoying yourself. No, I'm joking. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Pete's Pete's become a very good friend of mine over the years, and I've got the ultimate respect for him and what he does. And I think his his short game coaching skills are just off the charts and underrated and undervalued. I mean, Pete's helped me a lot with understanding about, you know, how to use the back. I don't like the word bounce because it gives this negative image of the club bouncing off the ground and hitting the ball right in the teeth and knocking it flying through the air about knee high. Um, so I like to refer to it as the back edge. Again, that's probably something I learned from Pete. Yeah, learning how to use the back edge and wedges, learning how to play different shots with different golf clubs, you know, be creative, be imaginative, but ultimately learn how to use and how to apply the golf club or tool in your hand. You know, as I've often said, it doesn't matter how much you spend on a new driver, new wedges, new set of irons, a new putter. The one thing that will you will never get with that is a user's manual. Hmm. You know, if you go and buy a new laptop and take it home, open up the box and there's no user's manual, what do you do? Straight back to the shop. I'm supposed yeah. to use this. <laughs> so unless you can learn how to use the tools of your trade, and, and that's where Pete has hugely helped with me as well, just to help me understand how to play different shots with different clubs. And I mean, his short game skills are just off the charts. You know, I've seen Pete playing one-handed bunker shots and beating guys like Stenson using two hands. Really? Yeah. Oh, he's, he's pretty impressive. He's pretty impressive. Yeah. Brilliant. So yeah, no, Pete's been very helpful. He's a good guy. Good. Doesn't good. doesn't like putting though. Doesn't think that putting's real golf. He doesn't think a putt should have the same value as a, a two iron over water off a downhill line. I've heard him talk about that. He thinks it should be half a shot. At best, yeah. I think uh, <laughs> Phil gives him a few digs back, doesn't he? <laughs> I'm sure he does. I'm sure, I'm sure he does. <laughs> okay. Um Gary, can you give us your favourite um, practice putting drill to improve distance control? Yes, I can indeed. Thank you. It's one we learned from uh, an Irish friend of ours, Carl and I, who introduced us to this drill, a guy called Barry Hobson, who learned it from the, the late, great Harry Bradshaw, who won, I think he won the Irish PGA Championship, something, some ridiculous number of times. I can't remember how many it was, but it was just more than you could count. And he, Harry Bradshaw, who was renowned as a fantastic putter, 
He only ever used one ball in practice. He didn't take out three. He only took one because, you know, always said you get one chance. There's no second service in golf. So you got, but he said for, for this specific drill, we call it Bradshaw's balls. He used two golf balls. So what he would do, he would hit a putt along on the green and he would hit it somewhere. Not a specific distance or direction. He just hit it somewhere. Yeah. And then he would imagine that that first golf ball was sitting on a, a disc or a ball marker. And then his task with the next one was to knock the first ball off its perch, if you like, and replace it with the second ball. But he's not trying to cannon it so hard that it goes flying across the green. It's just enough pace to just topple it off the ball marker and come to, to rest where the previous one was. And it's, it sounds like a really simple, really easy drill to use or training game to play. Trust me, it's possibly one of the most frustrating games you could ever play. But it's great fun, and it's, it's just really, really good, really good for, for dialing in your pace. Because, you know, we, we do it in schools and clinics and things. We, we, we talk about pace for, I don't know, half an hour or whatever. The whole concept of the, or the whole session is based around the concept of pace. And then we introduce them to this, this exercise. And eight times out of ten, people will leave it short. And we'll say, what happened there? What were you thinking? Oh, I just want to get the line right. And they go, oh, I can't believe I just said that. Oh, no, I can't believe I said that. Because we've talked about pace all morning, and then instinctively, they revert back to type and just start thinking about the line. Of course. So, yeah, that or the ladder drill where you, you set up a, a semicircle of tees about a putter's grip length from the outside of the hole and just create yeah. a semicircle. And then you, the idea is you, you putt from maybe three feet and you either hold it or you've got to keep it inside that semicircle. If it comes up short, you've got to start again. If it goes out with the semicircle, you've got to start again. But if you hold it, you can then move on to six feet and then nine feet and then 12 feet or whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, and that, again, is it's, it's very simple to start with if you do it on a flat part of the putting green or you do it uphill. So pace is, is quite easy to control. Yeah. But then you start introducing brake and slopes. So if you set up the same thing when you've got a downhill left to right putt, then all of a sudden you really start to understand why pace is so important. And that's a, that's a fantastic drill to use as well. I like it. I, I love the first drill there because it's a real visual aid for the student, isn't it? Yeah. To, to visualize the ball knocking the other ball off and sitting on the ball marker, yeah. knocking it off its perch. So it's not too hard, not too soft. It, it's yeah. just right. I love that. I, I'd, would you say that the reason that part of the reason that's so successful is because of the, the visualization process? Well, that question, that's part of it. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. There's so many, it's actually a very complex drill in many ways, but it's a very simple drill because it, it, it's, it's multifaceted. It does mean you have to introduce certain elements to achieve that goal. So you've got to visualize it. You've got to feel it. You've got to think about the pace. You've got to, yes, the line is important, but and you can actually, you can introduce bits. You can change it. So you, you, you can just, you've got to clip the left-hand side of the ball, or you've got to clip wow. the right-hand side of the ball. So you can make it pretty complex and, but it's, it's very engaging. 
put it that way. Right. It can be very yeah. frustrating after a while, but it can be very engaging, very rewarding. Very rewarding. I bet. Yeah, no, I'm going to uh, it's try great because, you know, if you can do that, then all of a sudden you're, you're looking at four and a quarter inch hole, then it looks a lot more inviting then. Brilliant. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's, um, it's good. It's not, as you said, it's a simple drill, but it's not, you just got to, one ball's got to hit the other ball. It's not just snooker. It's not just got no. to hit it. It's yeah, got to knock the other one off the perch. I love that. I yeah. love that. A little bit more Brilliant. subtle. Definitely, yeah. Okay, um, Gary, just to sort of wrap up for us, I want you mm-hmm. to um, d- dive into the books. Talk um, on the website, it says childish and childlike. You explain yeah. the sort of differences between those two. So if you could explain that and then tell the listeners where they can get the books from. Um, sure. Is there an order they should buy the books or all of them or... Have you got any deals that's coming on Black Friday or anything? Like we that? have indeed. I'll get to that in a minute. But the diff- first of all, to answer your first question, the difference between being childish and childlike. You know, if you think back, how old were you when you first started playing golf? Uh, I joined the club when I was 11, but I played in the fields behind our right. house when I was three. Yeah. So you would have a kind of childlike fascination of just making contact with the ball initially then mm-hmm. trying to get it to fly, then trying to get it to fly a bit higher, and then maybe a little bit further. And then when you went on the putting green, you had a, you know, if I said, right, okay, oh, here's a putter, here's a ball, can you use one of them to hit one of them into the hole? Yeah, yeah, watch this. Yeah. And you'd figure it out in no time at all. Yes? Sure. Because that's kind of how you learn, right? Sure, yeah, definitely. But if I spent an hour coaching you how to move 24 different body parts and setting up this way and that way and making sure everything was all very linear, very angular, whatever. Your head would explode with too much information and you'd get worse because you'd become so detached from the task. So yeah. to have a childlike fascination is just to really be paying attention to what the ball needs to do. Because that's what we did as kids. To be childish is to stamp your feet and throw clubs when the ball doesn't go in. So they might find they might sound quite similar, but to be childlike and to be childish are kind of poles apart, really. Yeah. So yeah, if you if you approach putting with a, a childlike innocence, if you like, and fascination, where it's just a task to can you use this putter? Is it possible this ball could go in the hole? Yeah, absolutely. So what does the ball need to do? Well, it needs to do this, it needs to do that. How do we figure that out? We've got to read the green. Is it uphill? Is it downhill? Is it left to right? Is it right to left? So once you've kind of gathered up all that information, then your attention is very much on what the ball needs to do. So that's where the kind of childlike fascination, because as a kid, you, you, your brain is calculating all these things. It's looking at the slopes. It's figuring out how can I use that slope to get my ball to go from over here to, to down there. But the child, the childish which is the opposite end of the scale, as I say, yeah. is to stamp your feet and, you know, throw clubs and blame everyone else apart and take no responsibility. Yeah, that's it's not a great look, is it? Definitely not. No. Yeah. You, you, you don't want to be that person. You certainly don't want to play with that person either. There's not a whole lot of fun to be around. No, definitely pain in the uh, ass. With regard to the books, um, well, the sequence we wrote them in was... Lost Art of Putting, then The Lost Art of Playing Golf, and the recently recently released 
Lost Art the Short Game. Um, they are all available at thelostartofgolf.com. You can also get them on Amazon and you can, the Kindles are very popular as well. Um, I think if you were to read them in sequence, the sequence we've, we've written them in, mm-hmm. um, we have a Black Friday deal going on starting. When does this, when this podcast go out, Ollie? Um, it's either going to go out on the 11th or the 17th. Okay, so if it goes out on the 17th, I think our Black Friday deal starts on the 15th. Okay. So we have, I think the books are going to be 25% off. So they're normally 1995. I think it's going to be 1495. And mm-hmm. as we have just completed the, the third book, we've got a, a special edition, kind of limited edition box set collection. So you get three books in a very nicely designed um, box set sleeve. So yeah, Black Friday deals all on the website, lostartgolf.com. And they will be available from, yeah, the 15th, I believe, which is next Monday. Is that correct? Or Monday the the 15th? Yeah, Monday the 15th is when it's all going to, the price is going to be chopped. So, yeah. If you were to read them in sequence, putting, playing golf, then the short game. And if you really want to spoil yourself, go for the box set. And if you don't want to spoil someone else, get yourself a box set and get them a box set as well. You know, Christmas is coming. You've got to think about these Christmas presents, haven't you? It's a great Christmas present. Really good Christmas present. And as I've said, I've, I've read the, uh, the putting book. Um, and uh, you might even convince me to buy, to buy the rest of them now. Let me know. Well, I'm sure we can figure something out for you. Great stuff. Gary, I've... Um, Thoroughly enjoyed uh, talking to you. Really appreciate your time. Um, no, all, my pleasure. by when you're having fun. No, I thoroughly enjoyed it. It's been really good chatting and good conversation. I've covered a lot yeah. of ground there, I think. Absolutely. Didn't know Great quite stuff. where you want to start with, but that's all. That's never a bad thing. Yeah, no, that's that's how I try and uh, run these sessions. Is yeah, uh, not too scripted, and we ju- we just chat away and end up yeah, where we are. See where it takes us. Absolutely. Okay. Great. Brilliant. Thanks a lot, Gary. Okay, thanks again. Cheers, Ollie. Bye now.